everybody, welcome back to the show. Today we deal with a very important topic. Is the Supreme Court of Canada interpreting the letter of the Constitution and protecting our charter rights and freedoms? Or have they gotten into the business of social engineering to pursue so-called progressive agendas that limit our individual liberties? As it turns out, I'm recording this on a very historic day in the U.S. when the Supreme Court finally overturned Roe v. Wade. Liberals are having a collective meltdown, but the point is when a liberal-dominated Supreme Court decreed the right to abortion in the original Roe v. Wade decision, they overstepped and took over the job of state legislatures, since abortion is not a constitutional right in the U.S. So many may disagree with this decision, but I happen to think it's the right one. My guest today is none other than Bruce Party, who is Executive Director of Rights Probe and Professor of Law at Queen's University. He's a tireless champion of individual liberty and writes widely on the subject. It's truly my pleasure and privilege to welcome Bruce to the show to chat about the state of the legal system in Canada and whether our individual liberties are actually being protected. Hey, Bruce, uh, welcome to my show. Welcome to the podcast. It's really an honor and privilege to have you here. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation um, about um, Canada's legal system. Hello, Rupa. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. So, Bruce, you know, let me just um, start by um, uh, telling you what I experienced during the Freedom Convoy protests. I was struck by something that uh, by, by an image of many people carrying a copy of the Charter, um, the ones I spoke to strongly believe that their charter rights uh, were, weren't being enforced. And from some of your writings, it sounds like you also don't believe that those rights are being enforced, partly because the courts are too deferential to the legislature, to the government, and perhaps uh, they also share the progressive agenda of the government. Um, what would you tell the average Canadian who doesn't necessarily get the niceties of constitutional law, why their charter rights were apparently not being upheld, um, say on issues like bodily autonomy? Right. It's a very good question. And, you know, one of, one of the silver linings, if there are any, uh, about this period is that more people are coming to uh, a personal understanding of how the legal system works and how the charter works and how it doesn't work and what it means and maybe what it should mean and so on. And before this was all background noise to a lot of people, but now it really matters. Now it really matters in, 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 in the very practical uh, sense of their everyday lives. And so the first thing I would say to them is, look, there's a, there's a difference between uh, saying that your civil liberties have been infringed, which is undoubtedly true and saying your charter rights have been infringed, which is a legal question. So the, the civil liberties thing is very straightforward. You know, if you're told you can't go here and can't go there, and if you do, you have to wear a mask or have to have a vaccine, you're being told what to do. And so in a very real sense, your liberties are being infringed. But that leaves open the question about whether they're being infringed in a legally remedial re sense. Uh, in, in a way, let me put that better, in a way that the courts will remedy if you if you complain about it. And that's not quite so clear. Uh, yes, over time, uh, the courts and the, especially the Supreme Court has tended to embrace a progressive way of interpreting the charter. But, but, but also one of the main problems is that the charter wasn't really built to withstand 
an all-encompassing managerial state. And so one of the distinctions I I try to explain to people um, is the difference between negative and positive rights. And many of the most important freedoms in the in the charter are negative freedoms in the sense that and they, I don't mean negative in the sense that they're bad and negative in the sense of what the government needs to do to comply with them. Mm-hmm. And the negative right simply means you just governments just leave people alone, just don't do anything. And if you leave people alone to their own devices, then you've complied with the negative right. Whereas a positive right on the other hand, is a right to receive something from government or otherwise. So um, welfare or access to housing or access to airplanes or access to something that the government rules or other people are, 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 are denying you. And so if we go along with the idea that the charter is built, basically the freedoms anyway, are built upon the, the idea of a negative freedom the argument from the government has been all the way along in this. Well, we're not making you do anything. We're not the the vaccines are not mandatory in the sense that we'll throw you in jail or issue a fine. Uh, you're free to wander about the country. You can walk. You can drive. You just can't get on a plane. But by the way, there's no charter right to get on a plane. That's a positive right to access an airline. And you know that, that there's some credence to that argument because that's the way the charter is built but here's the problem mm-hmm. we've come to the stage now where this managerial state controls everything everything your economic relationships your social relationships your movements your ability to have a license for driving for practicing a profession and so what's happening is the government is doing indirectly with all these little rules what it might not be allowed to do directly by saying you must get back and and so it's not really serving the purpose that people think it's supposed to serve yeah so yeah no i i i wanted to actually you know uh, follow up on that i i feel that my own observation is that governments um, have been rather sneaky uh, when it's come to vaccine mandates. Uh, those that have imposed these vaccine mandates on the on their people, um, uh, you know, instead of just saying, "Hey, we're mandating vaccination," for example, Austria tried to do that this past winter and then backtracked. Um, you know, they've said you need a vaccine for the following activities: X, Y, Z, uh, travel, dining out, etc. But not a technical mandatory vaccination, which is punishable by a fine or jail. Um, But then even then, the restrictions imposed by the vaccine mandates could reasonably be argued uh, as in in that they're uh, impeding a person's uh, normal life. Uh, So it's basically mandatory vaccination in all but name. Um, So do you think that the courts have been too uh, deferential in accepting the government's rationale for the mandates as reasonable limits as set out in Section 1? Like the, the the court story on vaccine mandates is still yet to be fully told because a lot of these cases are still pending, and so we'll find out. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and none of these none of these COVID cases have gone to the Supreme Court yet, so there's a lot of the story still to to find out. Um, but on other matters, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and the one reason I, I, I would expect that we don't actually have literally mandatory vaccines is that that would be a much easier charter case to make. 
because we have in Section 7 the right to security of the person, and that in includes the right to bodily autonomy in the sense that we have the right to give informed consent to any kind of medical procedure. But so right there, you've got a, 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 a real reason why a mandatory vaccine would probably, hopefully, be found to violate that, that, that right. However, if it's not a full-on requirement, if it is, as you say, you know, little bits and pieces so as to avoid infringing that right, this is essentially what's, what's, what's happening. And um, the argument goes, and I think, again, there's some credence to the, to the legal approach here, uh, that, that if you are asked by your employer, say, for example, whether it's the employer alone, and of course, employers, employers, private employers, are not subject to the charter because they're not governed. But a lot of employers are are imposing these mandates under cover of a government rule, a government directive, a government recommendation. Uh, so people are saying, well, I'm being coerced by my employer to get a vaccine. And in a sense, they are. Because the, I mean, the threat is, do this or you'll lose your job. But the problem is that that's not quite the same thing as the charter means in terms of the, the right to bodily autonomy, the right to security of the person. Because if you think of this in terms of other kinds of job requirements, and I, and I know they're not the same thing. I, I, just, I know people are going to say, but, but the one thing's not like the other thing. And they're right. But the example that I use is getting a haircut. So let's say your employer brings in a new policy that says all our employees must have short hair. And you don't want to have short hair. And you have to go to the barber to get a haircut. And you think, I'm being coerced. And, and, and in a way, you are. But it's not unlawful coercion because it's part of the policies that the employer is entitled to make. So in the same way, I'm, I'm, let's try this. If you go to, to, let's say you want to buy a bike. And you find a used bike for sale. You go to the person selling the bike. And you say, I'll, I'll, I'll give you 100 bucks for the bike. And they say, no, 150 and they say, if you don't pay me 150, you can't have the bike. Now, would we say those people, the, the, the seller of the bike is coercing me into, into buying the bike? No, we wouldn't say that because you can say, no, I don't want it and walk away. Mm -hmm. Okay. Same idea. I seem abstract idea with your job. Yeah. You know, you're, it's a deal, right? You work and they pay you. And one day the employer comes along and says, well, I don't want to pay you unless you have a hair short haircut. So, it's coercion in a sense, but not in that unlawful sense where you might be fined or imprisoned if you don't do it. And so same argument is being applied with the vaccines. It's, is it the, you are being coerced on threat of loss of your job, but it's not unlawful coercion because you can always walk away and find a job somewhere else. Ignoring the fact that these vaccine mandates are very broad and being pushed by governments in many sectors so that the appearance of your freedom to go and find another job without one is illusory. Yeah, and um, you know, I just wanted to um, shift gears a little bit, and I wanted to bring in some uh, international comparison. Um, and specifically, I was struck by a recent um, uh, news development um, uh, from India. Uh, India's legal system is based 
on the same uh, British legal system on which our legal system is based, as you know, um, and laws are made by Parliament. And and recently, in the Indian, you know, and the courts by and large tend to defer to the legislature. Having said that, the uh, recently the Indian Supreme Court ruled that bodily autonomy must be protect, protected as laid out in the Constitution, and that vaccine mandates, which the federal government never never imposed, uh, were unconstitutional. Again, it's worth pointing out that this isn't a country where the courts have generally been uh, quite uh, deferential to the government. Meanwhile, back in Canada, it's noteworthy that during the course of the pandemic, legal challenges to lockdowns, mandates, and other restrictions have mostly failed in the courts um, and whose decisions have uh, mostly been in line with the government's view on, on, on the pandemic. Um, and similarly, you know, our arbitrators uh, on matters such as challenge, challenging workplace uh, mandates have invariably, um, uh, you know, tended to favor the government's view. This is a puzzle. I mean, I've been trying to uh, understand this. How do you explain that Canadian courts have been so deferential to the government when it comes to COVID-19 rules and restrictions in in particular, I, I mean, they seem to be even more deferential than any other Westminster country like India. Uh, my comparison is not the U.S., where their courts are much less deferential. Well, they, they do tend to be deferential in this country, but not but not across the board. I mean, it depends upon the cause. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some situations in which you can think of through the years where they have not been deferential. So, for example, it was the courts and not the legislature that brought in uh, gay marriage. Canada. It was the courts that said, no, no, this is required by the Constitution. You will do this. And that's not deferential at all. So it it, it does tend to be the pattern. It's, 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 there's, there's exceptions to the pattern, of course, but the pattern has been that they're deferential to governments in one direction, but not in another direction. Our courts tend to be very progressive. In fact, in uh, the first press conference that the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court held when he was first appointed as the Chief Justice, a reporter asked him whether or not he agreed that the Supreme Court of Canada was the most progressive in the world. And he said he agreed with that and was very proud of it. And, and that that is that is a, a court acknowledging the political perspective that they're coming from. And you can see that reflected in a lot of the judgments. And so the 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 deference that's being being applied, and as I said, the Supreme Court has not yet heard a COVID case, uh, but the other courts that have heard lockdown cases and so on have tended to be deferential. And in some cases, a couple of cases that the uh, in family law, for example, a couple of uh, judges have even taken judicial notice, judicial notice of the effectiveness and the safety of the vaccine, even though that was one of the factual matters in contention. Now, Judicial notice is is not a kind of thing that courts are supposed to use about facts in dispute. They're supposed to be a shortcut to deal with facts that nobody in the right mind would contest, like the sky is blue. Uh, what is uh, judicial notice, Bruce? If, if, if... Judicial notice is a, is a, is a conclusion okay. that a court can come to, a factual conclusion a court can come to without the need for evidence. Okay. So in a courtroom, I mean, technically speaking, here, here's the, the basic rule. The basic rule is the court knows nothing, nothing. Everything you hear in a courtroom, any factual conclusion must come from evidence that you hear from witnesses or from documents in the courtroom. 
Now, there are some facts that are so notorious, like the sky is blue, that you really wouldn't want to take the court's time to get a witness to explain that the sky is blue, I saw it was blue this morning, and so on. So that's a shortcut to, to cut through the, that rule so as to get at the real matters that are in contention and, 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 and for an efficient use of court resources. But it's not meant to be used for the matters that are in dispute for which you should need evidence. And in these, in these couple of instances, we have courts so deferential to the government narrative that they take judicial notice of the safety and efficacy of the vaccine, which in these family law disputes between, you know, separated uh, parents about whether or not the child's going to get vaccinated, it, it is one of the main things that's in contention. So it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's quite a remarkable um, trend or, or pattern that you have courts embracing what essentially is a particular narrative on things as opposed to starting from a blank slate and saying, I know nothing about this. And we'll, we'll see what, we'll see what your witnesses say. We'll see what your experts say. And we will, we'll evaluate the evidence on that basis. But, but back to your question about, about the comparison between India and, and Canada, I, I don't know the particularities of the text that the Indian courts were working from, but here, here is one, characteristic of our law, and it may be the case in, in India as well if they're based upon the same system, but one of the characteristics of our system shared throughout the Commonwealth is that of legislative supremacy. And the Charter and the Constitution is an exception to that principle. In other words, if you're looking for the starting place where the system begins, it's really legislative supremacy and not the Charter. So the idea of legislative supremacy is that a, a body like a legislature that has democratic legitimacy can make laws about anything they want. And it does not have to justify those laws based upon evidence or data or rationality or benefit or any of those things. Um, the one exception is whether or not it, that law violates a charter right. But that's a burden that the person alleging the violation has to prove. So People are seeing these policies, seeing these statutes that are causing harm, they're causing economic harm, they're causing physical harm, they're violating civil liberties, and they think, well, this can't, this can't be lawful, this can't be right, this must be a violation. And the government hasn't shown, hasn't shown the data that it's based on, hasn't, hasn't justified the benefits, hasn't done the cost-benefit analysis, let's see it, hasn't shown it to us, therefore it must be invalid. No. That's not, that's not the criteria for a valid law. If you have a, a properly elected legislature and it passes a statute, then the statute is valid unless you can show the violation of a charter right. There are only a couple of exceptions where all of this information becomes relevant, all the facts that people are focused on, and rightfully so. If you can, if you can show a violation of a charter right, then and only then you get into a section one argument because section one requires the government to justify as a reasonable limit the violation of the right and then the facts become important but unless you can get over that threshold first then the government doesn't have to answer to to to, to these kinds of of requests to justify what it is that they've done um, so, Bruce, you've also noticed and um, you, you've written uh, that the Supreme Court of Canada has uh, increasingly taken on an activist, progressive stance rather than sticking to interpreting the law and the Constitution as, as written. 
why do you suppose this has happened and where do you think we're heading with this? Do you think that um, um, that conceivably the Supreme Court could become uh, much more politicized as it is in the U.S.? Yes. Well, let's start with this. Every judge has their own philosophy. And so when we talk about courts in general, we're talking about trends as opposed to saying every single judge thinks this way, which is not true at all. Uh, you know, in the Supreme Court of Canada, for example, they often have dissents on various things, and that's a healthy sign, I think, that, that, that the judges are, 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 are treating their tasks as individuals and not as a group, which is good. Um, the fact of the matter is that our courts have been as political as this courts in the U.S., I think, forever, except that it's more noticeable in the U.S. because you have... Uh, essentially two competing sides and when you have two competing sides you can see the you can see the battle going on and you can see the inclinations in the political sense and sometimes in the partisan sense but it's it's when we say political we can also mean a, a much more broader sort of philosophical or ideological take on things mm -hmm. um, it's not that our courts are immune from that it's just that we don't have these two sides we we have a prevailing progressive country with progressive courts. And like I say, this is not the case across the board. It's not the case with every court or every judge. Uh, but but it's not, it's not a distinctly two sides fighting phenomenon, as you will see in the U.S. And so we've been able to, to uh, sort of promote this myth that our courts are not political. Sure they are. Sure they are. They're just not, they're just not in the same kind of dynamic. As, as in the States, and perhaps not as partisan here, not as partisan here, because frankly, most of the mainstream political parties are pretty much on the same page too, as opposed to more conflict on that ground in the US. Yeah, and that, that uh, brings me up to this, uh, to, to a related question. Uh, the current Chief Justice of the Supreme Court was recently in the news for speaking out against the Freedom Convoy. And uh, you've argued very persuasively uh, that the sitting Chief Justice, that, you know, by doing so, this, uh, by him doing so, this tarnishes the uh, the perception of impartiality. Uh, if any challenges, uh, say, to the Emergencies Act uh, eventually reaches the Supreme Court. Um, why do you think Chief Justice Wagner thought it was okay to opine on a matter in such a strong way, uh, um, you know, as to be siding completely with the government. Um, aren't are there any sanctions uh, for uh, in the system for for this kind of behavior? I cannot answer why he did that. You'd have to ask him. Uh, yeah, but. <laughs> The, the 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 remedies for this kind of thing range from recusing oneself right. from a case. Now, to be to be sure, the, that case none of so there there are at least four challenges right now to the invocation of the Emergency Act, and none of those cases have been heard yet, much less found their way to the Supreme Court of Canada. And so, who knows? Perhaps if and when one of those does reach the court, maybe the Chief Justice will see fit to rec recuse himself from the hearing of that case. I mean, who knows? Um, but he is the chief justice of the whole system. And so I would have thought that ex his expression of a view on a particular dispute like this would have ramifications that extend beyond his actual sitting on the case and might influence other judges within the system whose courts essentially uh, report report to the Supreme Court of Canada in the, in the hierarchical sense. 
Um, so I'm not sure that simple recusal would would fix the effect that that uh, the the expression of opinion has had in this case. Uh, yeah, the damage has already been done, uh, right? In a sense, exactly. if were that, to recuse himself. That's right. That, that's yeah. correct. That's correct. And and the degree of influence that the expression of that opinion has had is impossible to calculate. It, it would be very very difficult to figure out what the effect was, whether or not it was zero or minimal or substantial. I mean, who who knows? We can only speculate. I mean, is there is there a, you know something we could do to prevent this kind of uh, thing from happening in the future? Should should there be a code of conduct for Supreme Court justices and other officials, you know, that they should remain uh, silent on matters that could that could come before them, or, or you know, which could take them into the area arena of uh, political contestation? Well, in fact, there is one already. This, the Canadian Judicial Council has uh, a document called uh, "Ethical Principles for Judges," and it does suggest, as as do as do decisions of the Supreme Court itself, say that judges must must be and must appear to be impartial on all disputes that that come before them. Um, it's, it's a very well established and not 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 contentious legal principle. Uh, the The whole idea of impartiality is that you refrain from forming and being seen to form a view about the case you haven't heard yet. Uh, and if if remarks outside of the courtroom are such that it's clear that that's not the case, then one of the parties going to reasonably perceive that, that they're already at a disadvantage before the case has happened. Uh, so I, it's, it's, this is pretty straightforward stuff, you would have thought. Mm -hmm. And yet... We now have the the uh, the practice of this, uh, the chief justice, and the, this chief justice is not the first one. Um, the chief justice now holds press conferences uh, every year uh, with journalists to talk about this and that. And I suppose that you know could be done in a way that avoided this kind of a problem, but it also risks this very thing. The more you express opinions about matters that might come before you, the, the, the more likely it is that the perceived impartiality of the court would be put at risk. Um, so, you know, I wanted to go back to progressivism, something that we touched upon uh, earlier in our conversation. Um, and it sounds as if progressivism in the service of collectivism has taken hold in, in our legal system, uh, essentially working as a um, Handmaiden of the of of the of the technocratic state, and you've you've argued uh, this in several of your recent writings. Um, the question really is, you know, as believers in individual liberty and uh, and originalists, uh, you know, as in interpreting the Constitution as it was written, how do we reclaim our freedoms in such a context? Yes, you know, this is this is the question, Rupa. It's the question that we're all asking ourselves. What do you do when the institutions in your society seem to have adopted a completely different philosophy than the one that you believe your society is built on? Yeah. And I, if I had an easy answer to that, I, I'd be I'd be shouting it from the rooftops, and I I really don't. But uh, but but first, I mean, the, the first reality is that it's it's really got to come from the people. And part of the problem during these past two years is, I mean, in addition to the problem that the technocrats have taken over, in addition to the problem that the courts don't seem to care, in addition to the problem that the you know, public health officials have been given more power than they deserve, and so on, the, the real problem is that a whole bunch of people, a very large 
portion of the population seemed to be fine with it and, and wanted more of it and complain when it's in when that when the restrictions are taken off. I mean, that this is the central problem. And so there's a lot of educating to do, a lot of talking to do, a lot of, of trying to get people out of the trance that they seem to be in. And I, I, I'm not sure that that very much will happen before that happens, because many of our institutions are 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 built upon and think that they're following public opinion, public sentiment, as opposed to pushing against it. And until they do have to push against it, I'm yeah. not sure that they will feel compelled to to change the path that they're on. Um, yeah, and and you know, I also I wanted to you know ask you something about the Supreme Court and the composition of the Supreme Court. Um, you know, even if the Trudeau government falls in the next election, the composition will be the same. Uh, do you think we are heading, or maybe should we be heading toward a U.S. style situation where party leaders uh, take a stand on what sort of justices uh, they would appoint to the Supreme Court? Or would this be too great a deviation from our current Westminster-inspired model? Yeah, it's a fair question. I, I'm not opposed to to uh, to open hearings and fights about who gets appointed to the Supreme Court. I think it's healthy for a society to 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 air these things and to make clear what the choices are and the consequences of those choices. And the fact that when you do appoint a person, whoever that person happens to be that person is going to carry with them some predilections. And we need to know what the predilections are. And, and you know, people have said, well, you know, with respect to the comments from the Chief Justice and so on, you know, wouldn't you prefer that he has said these things so you know where he's coming from as opposed to hiding it? And, you know, they got a point. Maybe, maybe it's just as well in that sense that we don't pretend that our courts are all, you know, absolutely tabula rasa, neutral and do not have any inclinations before they sit down on uh, at the bench maybe that's just so not true that we should acknowledge it's not true and then air these things in public and and fight about it a little bit i mean one of the things about the u.s political situation is they do fight about things and you know our, our, our you know us polite canadians we don't like fighting but actually there's a healthy aspect to it as well because you at least know you know where things stand right. and and what's at stake and and you know what people represent and so on and i think a little bit more of that would be helpful yeah um and and finally bruce could you tell us a bit about the free north declaration uh it, it's it's an initiative of yours uh the intent behind the free north declaration and uh and how has it progressed since uh since you launched it right yes so the free north declaration is is a is a statement of concern that, that that I and three colleagues put together, three other lawyers, um, and we this was last fall, and we got to the point of of thinking, you know what, this is this is going very badly. Civil liberties are being are being crushed. Um, the, the 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 courts are not responding. The legal profession is not responding. Uh, we have to say to the public that we don't agree. With this we see something wrong we see that there's a crisis and something needs to be done about it and nothing in the nothing in the declaration itself is going itself to lead to any changes i mean it's just a declaration um we've had over 600 other lawyers uh sign on to it uh over 90,000 citizens non-lawyers sign on to it which was 
very gratifying and 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 uh, better than we had hoped. Um, but it's it's really just a a shout in the darkness to say things are not right, people, and we are losing things in this country that are really very important. We're crossing a threshold, and we may not realize that once the threshold is crossed, it's very difficult to get it back. And uh, I, I'm I'm afraid that that that's exactly what has been happening over these past two years. Standards and norms that we more or less took for granted in the before times yeah. are, are now out the window. I mean, before, just to give you one, one small example, the idea before that a business or an employer would have been able to ask you for your vaccination status or your medical status in any other respect would have been seen to be outrageous. And now it's outrageous to object. That that's the kind of, of change that we're experiencing, and and we've got a big job to try and get even to get back to where we were in in you know 2019. How hopeful are you about the future? Uh, are we going to be able to prevent uh, this sort of infringement of our individual liberties and freedoms going forward? I am I am greatly concerned. I, I would like to hope so, and I don't think I don't think it's a. a a lost cause yet, but I'm very um, concerned because the this this managerial state that we've spoken of tends to travel only in one direction, yeah. which is it, it is bigger and more comprehensive and more intrusive. And as the technology gets better to to pay more attention to what we're doing, to surveil us, and to make sure we're behaving properly, those pressures will continue. The, the the state and its bureaucrats always want a little more control because they think that's their job to make sure everything goes right. And the opposite vision is one. So the, the, the vision of the managerial state, in a sense, is one of order, order. We don't want misbehavior. We want compliance. We want people to behave in the interest of the common good. We don't want you to say this. We don't want you to do that. We want order. The competing vision is one of a little bit of chaos. You know, free people do a lot of different things, and that's okay. As long as they're not harmful to each other, as long as there's no violence, peaceful chaos is a great society to live in. But chaos is the kind of thing that managerial states do not like. And so I, I hope their, their efforts to stamp it out will be eventually pushed back, but it's going to be a very high mountain decline. Well, on, on that note, Bruce, uh, I'm gonna, we're going to have to end this, but what a fascinating conversation. Um, and I feel like we could have gone on much longer. Um, I really uh, want, want to thank you for coming on to the show, and uh, I'm sure we'll have lots to chat about uh, if you come on again, and I really hope you will uh, at some point in the near future. So thank you for being here, and it's been a great pleasure and privilege to have you uh, uh, to be in conversation with you. Thank you so much. It's been the pleasure has been mine, Rupa. I appreciate it very much and I look forward to next time. Okay. Thanks. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you so much. Thank you.